Hi everyone and welcome to the My Vietnam Podcast. I'm your host Marissa Lee and my co-host Ringo is here today as well. Hello everybody out there listening. Hello Marissa, how are you today? Thank you for listening to the My Vietnam Podcast. So today we have a special episode about coronavirus. We have phone and Skype interviews with guests from Michigan, San Francisco, and Vietnam. We'll be talking to Michigan doctor Julie Tai, who is on the front lines of this current battle with coronavirus. And then we will be speaking with filmmaker James Q. Chan, who is in San Francisco. And we will be talking with novelist Andrew Lam from Saigon, Vietnam, who is writing his current novel. It was very interesting to hear them talk about the 45th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War, which is this month. That is another topic that we will be sharing with you. So please join us. So I interviewed Flint, Michigan, Dr. Julie Tai, who is fighting this current coronavirus battle, and she's about to enter the COVID-19 ward. We talk about the human spirit shining through as Americans come together and lend a helping hand to one another. There's so many inspiring stories of solidarity, resilience, and compassion. Let's start with Dr. Tai. And sorry in advance for some static as we did a telephone interview. Let's take a listen. Hello, Julie. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking your time. We know your days are long um, with this new normal, this trying time that all Americans are facing at this moment. So we really appreciate you taking your time and joining us. Of course, I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. What I really like to know is, what is your day-to-day like? What do you see happening? Can you take us with you? How is America fighting back? And what's going on in, you know, specifically your hospital or your town in Flint, Michigan? How is this battle against the COVID-19 playing out in your area? Well, um, I'm actually one of the chief residents of a family medicine residency program in Flint, Michigan. And Flint has had its fair share of devastating events um, in the past decade. And this is no different. Um, I would say my day-to-day is not quite the same as what others are experiencing right now in other parts of the country. Um, I've currently been on my night float, meaning I cover the hospital at night um, for um, our patients, and I haven't been um, too intimately involved with taking care of COVID-19 patients, although we have had some patients on our list um, who have um, turned out to be positive. Um, The thing that we worry most about is being able to stay safe while taking care of patients. So um, coming into the hospital, there's always this, um, you know, uh, we take certain precautions. There's always this routine of putting on a fresh pair of scrubs, um, covering our shoes, covering our hair, um, getting our mask ready. Um, So it's definitely 
um, like you said, the new normal for all of us. Um, it's nothing that we are accustomed to. Um, and when we see patients, we, uh, I previously like to spend time with my patients and talk to them, um, but now I'm not able to. I can only quickly see them, examine them um, as appropriate, and then leave the room quickly so that I'm not exposing them, nor are they exposing me. Uh, so it's definitely been uh, really challenging. You know, what I'm hearing some healthcare workers say is, you know, this is a battlefield that has turned doctors and nurses into soldiers. I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I know a lot of people are using the word or the words war and battle to describe the, um, the efforts of the healthcare workers to respond to the, uh, the growing rate of um, infection of individuals across the country. Um, I personally don't want to view it that way. Um, I, I feel that we are doing our job. This is what we've been trained to do um, in, in times of a pandemic. This is what doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers uh, would do. Um, but it is more extensive than anything I've ever done. Um, and I can understand why people use those terms What's the protocol for exposure at your hospital? I think initially before we really had a handle on what was going on, we were telling people that if they had any known exposure to uh, a patient who had tested positive for COVID-19, that we would ask them to stay at home and self-quarantine for 14 days. Um, but now that we are so low on um, healthcare workers and the number of individuals coming in with symptoms it has risen, we are um, trying to use everybody we can. So uh, unless there is a known exposure or someone is symptomatic, um, we're asking everybody to come in and help. One thing I just wanted to um, add uh, to my response to one of your um, earlier questions is how it's affecting the people of Flint. So this is a very unique community. Uh, it's an urban underserved community uh, that, um, again, has seen uh, many tragedies in the last decade uh, and even longer. So what I've been seeing is that a lot of my patients um, are, are running out of money, running out of resources. So I called a patient the other day and she said she did not have enough food for her, her animals, her pets at home. And it was very heartbreaking to learn this because, you know, although we are here fight, fighting on the front lines, we still have enough, we still have job security and most of my patients have lost their jobs, have lost their source of income and we'll be running out of food. Um, and so I'm trying to connect them to resources in the community to keep them going. And um, I also, um, you know, have been trying to uh, provide donations to these individuals and um, asking other people in my program to do the same. So I hope, you know, the, the human spirit is a wonderful thing and I hope people step up and um, provide for these individuals who may need help, um, especially at this time. In your experience, your firsthand experience, what are some, what do you see that is troubling you 
And then on the opposite side, what do you see that is hopeful? I can only speak for the hospital where I'm working. I think we we launched an early response. We were prepared for this. So although um, everyone is pretty much uh, overwhelmed and overworked, I think we're still managing. Um, And I feel as though, uh, you know, I have at least right now enough PPE to, to get me through the pandemic. I think the most troubling aspect of this pandemic, um, especially for hospitals um, and other facilities that provide healthcare services, is that um, we don't have enough PPE, which is personal protective equipment. So having to recycle masks until they're soiled or wet, um, I think can be dangerous. Um, Not having enough um, eyewear, uh, protective eyewear, not having... um, enough uh, scrubs or coverings, uh, shoe coverings, hair coverings, but especially masks um, because the the virus can um, be transmitted via respiratory droplets. So it's especially important to cover our mouths and our noses when we're being exposed to patients with symptoms. Um, so I would say that's probably uh, the one aspect that we need to work on. Um, but otherwise, I think the second part of your question is what's hopeful. Um, again, uh, I, I refer to the human spirit. I think it's amazing to see people stepping up and wanting to help. I've seen a lot of uh, my colleagues asking for additional shifts um, in, in treating COVID-19 patients. Uh, they just they feel as though they serve a greater purpose when they're being helpful during this time. I actually just talked to a friend as well about, um, you know, my patients who are in need of pet food or food for themselves, and they now want to donate food and donate other resources to help these patients. So you really see people coming together to lend a hand during this time, and it's truly wonderful. Um, I I hope that this will continue, whether um, this pandemic uh, continues or not. I, I hope people will continue to help each other as much as um, they are doing now. Being an Asian American doctor, um, you're a Vietnamese American doctor, I wanted to ask you if um, you've noticed any of the Asian, with the Asian American racism and hate crimes. How do you feel about that being an Asian American doctor who is on the front lines of this? battle against the virus yeah um it's actually really heartbreaking to hear that there has been um so much anti um asian sentiments um because of this pandemic um it's hard to ascertain exactly where it came from um, I know a lot of people believe that it um, originated in China, hence why people are angry. Um, I know this is a difficult time, and a lot of people will be angry and frustrated and scared, and um, I don't believe that it's right. Um, I personally have not experienced any discrimination, um, and I would hope that I, I don't have to experience that during this time because I... Uh, you know, I, I am trying to help, and I hope people see that as opposed to seeing that I'm Asian American and therefore I'm somehow linked to, you know, the cause of this pandemic. Um, although I would say that my, my other Asian colleagues around the country 
have told these stories of how they felt discriminated against, how others have um, said things to them, um, have used racial slurs um, against them uh, out in public or in the work setting. Um, so that's very upsetting for me to hear because we, we're doing this because we love what we do and we are here to help our patients and the general public and for people to um, hurt us in that manner, um, I think really just um, compromises the, the, um, our ability to, you know, to help others. Um, it makes us scared. Uh, first and foremost, um, a lot of people fear that they will be harmed physically and otherwise because they are Asian American. So I hope that people listening to this podcast will um, really, you know, encourage others to be more accepting um, and less hateful towards others um, simply because of their, their race and ethnicity. Right. And I think with you sharing your story of being on the front lines as an Asian American, as a Vietnamese American who is working to fight this uh, virus right now, I think that would really help with showing that the Asian American spirit is just as resilient as well. You know? Definitely. And with that, I want to ask you, what hope can you leave us with and our listeners? Well, um, I would say that this is an important time for self-reflection. Now that people have time, they're not in the rat race that we're so accustomed to. Um, it's good to just take a breather and kind of self-reflect and think about where they are in life, what their values are, um, and also what their hopes are. Um, I think it's different for everybody. Um, you know, what their outlook is at the end of all of this. Like, what are people hoping to get out of this experience? Um, I hope that people will practice more gratitude. Um, I hope that people will um, embrace each other more and uh, just learn to appreciate those around them. Um, some of us may have been taking other people and things in our lives for granted for many years until this happened, and it kind of, um, you know, it makes us uh, take a hard look at how we've been living our lives. Um, and I think a lot of people um, have been very introspective and they've seen that they they need to, you know, change how they treat others and how they treat themselves. So I think people should know that together we can overcome this and that the healthcare workers and everybody else is doing everything we can to fight this. Um, and, you know, we are resilient as a country. Um, like you said, it's, it's the American spirit to reach out and help each other, and I've seen a lot of that, and I hope to see more of that, but um, I hope people don't lose faith in, in their own abilities to overcome this. Well, thank you, Dr. Julie Tai, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Marissa. I really appreciate the opportunity, and thank you for... Um, their podcast in, in helping to bring the Asian American perspective to everyday life. I appreciate it. Wow, that was a very good and informative interview that Marissa just had with Dr. Tai. It was very heartwarming and informative. Next, I will be talking with director James Q. Chan from San Francisco 
And I will be talking with novelist Andrew Lam, who is in Saigon, Vietnam right now. We will be talking about coronavirus and the end of the Vietnam War, the 45th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War. So much insightful information. Let's listen in. Today I have with me James uh, Q. Chan. Hi, James. Hi, Ringo. James is an Emmy-nominated um, filmmaker, very accomplished, working on his um, feature doc, right? I'm working on um, a feature, but the, the two things, it's the um, a feature narrative, and uh, it's based on a book called Child of the Owl, written by Lawrence Yep. Mm-hmm. And then the other project that is on hold now is a documentary um, for Disney. And that is, uh, that takes place in China. <laughs> so, oh, um, yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you. It's all on hold. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's amazing, though. And then we also have Andrew Lam. Andrew is an accomplished, very accomplished writer and journalist. <laughs> And how many books have you written now, Andrew? Uh, written three, three finishing books? up my fourth, uh, uh-huh. next collection, and then mm-hmm. uh, gonna really sink into my novel now since I'm almost done with my uh, collection of uh, second collection of stories. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so um, today I wanted to talk. Well, <laughs> we're quarantined, so not quarantined, but we're staying safer at home. So yeah. let's talk coronavirus. So, okay. how has it been for you guys? I'm in Vietnam right now, so I would say um, uh, it's strangely calm and quiet, given the fact that uh, we're under 15-day uh, lockdown. Uh, people are very cooperative, and they basically uh, believe in the government at this point because given the fact that there's only 245 uh, positive cases and no deaths, which is quite amazing for a country of 95 million people. Um, and some of my friends in the U.S. say, are you sure you can trust the government statistics? And I say, well, I'm pretty sure that there are more positive. But when someone dies in Vietnam uh, of this virus, the government cannot hide it because um, unlike China, uh, social media is quite free here. So the moment something happens, someone's on Facebook telling you know, like, oh, someone died, someone died, right? So yeah. very hard for them to hide that stuff. Yeah. And they're probably going to make a YouTube video out of it, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so right. many YouTube videos in Vietnam. Um, and James, what is it like for you in San Francisco? Well, we were one of the first cities to have the shelter-in-place enforced, um, I think, three weeks ago. So I think we're on week three um how is it it is surreal it is um i live in the right right by chinatown so i'm on the on the cusp of knob hill and chinatown and uh chinatown is pretty much like a ghost town now the whole city but if you look at chinatown in particular like on any on any given hour of the day maybe not in the evenings it is it's a pulsating community like there's there's a a park here called portsmouth square 
and Port, Portsmouth Square is is um, it's an extension of the community's living room. Many of the tenants that live in Chinatown live in single room occupancies. And uh, so the park becomes an extension of their living room. So you'll, you'll see elders, um, uh, men and women using that park to socialize. Uh, there's, there's, you know, card games, there's gambling, there's also women's exercise where they have like uh, line dancers in the evenings. Um, you have kids riding their, their tricycles. So all that is completely like, it's, it's disappeared. Everybody's, everybody's in inside. Um, of course, all the touristy, uh, shops are, are closed and, and some restaurants are, are open for, you know, takeout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's the produce markets. Those are that, that's still open for, for the community, but pretty much it's like 90%, um, uh, desolate. Mm. Wow. And for you, Andrew, are people in Vietnam pretty good about not going out and like not partying? And yeah, clubbing? I mean, in general, they're pretty good. Um, and they actually uh, practice wearing masks. In fact, now, if you don't wear a mask in public, they will fine you like several hundred dollars, which is a lot of money for you. Yeah. Uh, and in my building, when you don't wear a mask, when you go downstairs, someone will tell you, like, you need to go back and put on a mask. Wow. You know? I personally don't think the mask actually saved you from breathing in the virus, but mm -hmm. it does, um, if someone is positive, uh, it does uh, mitigate the, the explosion of, you know, the mucus and so on uh, into the air. So then it may protect other people who are not positive. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but in terms of uh, economy, uh, the, the city, the country is really suffering. I mean, there are um, people of certain class and certain uh, kind of jobs that are okay, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, young people who work in the service industry here, they all lost their jobs. And then students who uh, are working and then going to school, well, they lost their whole semester and they lost their job. So a lot of them have just gone back to the countryside just in order to survive. You know? So I know several people who just, you know, just abandoned their schools mm -hmm. and abandoned their the future just because they don't see how they can continue. Uh, and then someone just told me yesterday that this man who uh, didn't have food and he was borrowing money and he couldn't find any, it's like in his early thirties and he hung himself out of depression. Wow. So the level of poverty and desperation is definitely there uh, for this country. And I'm sure for a lot of other countries right now. Um, so it's like uh, that when everyone's off, huh? So it's a, it's ten times worse than that. No, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, you know, I, where I live, the the big avenue, uh, mm -hmm. it's really hard to cross on a regular day because it's like a river of, of people, mm -hmm. of cars and motorcycles. Mm -hmm. And now I'm, I'm just walking like it's a neighborhood lane because there's no one. It's it's that depressing. Wow. And all the restaurants are closed too. Like the yeah, so they can only deliver or take out. There is no uh, bars, no nothing. But Vietnam has because it doesn't have the resources like in the U.S. Um, so it um, what it does is that it tries to stop the the virus at, at the source. Mm. So two two recent uh, incidents that made the the lockdown uh, a reality was that but uh, uh, my which is like a hospital in the north yeah. they they fucked up they screwed up the uh, uh, 
protection and hygiene. And then so several people who were workers got infected and then they went home and infected other people. So then the whole hospital is under quarantine lockdown, but also, you know, families of all these people. And then they're trying to find out, you know, like first, second, third um, person that these people connected to. And then in Saigon, there was a bar called Buddha, Buddha Bar, an American or Western uh, pilot who was positive went there a couple times and he apparently passed the virus around. And the government basically went online and said, you must report if you went to this bar at this time. If you don't and we find out, we will put you in jail. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. And so they, it's like this, <clears throat> this last few days is a hunt for people who won't show up. And, mm-hmm. and so they look at the, uh, the bars of uh, camera mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out who went. And oh they caught God. several people, including wow. Westerners and Big Hill, and they're all under quarantine right now. Wow. You know? So That's Vietnam wow. is really vigilant. really vigilant because it knows that it cannot, like when there is an outbreak, it, it may completely fall apart in terms of uh, being a ruling uh, power. Yeah. You know? Because if there is chaos here, it's not as if the government will be stable. They, you know, it, it could be the end of uh, the Communist Party if they don't act now. So yeah. they're very uh, proactive with all these things, which wow. is too amazing to me. But it does help that you're authoritarian regime because, <laughs> yes. you know, what can you do? <laughs> like, you cannot, like, disagree. <laughs> yeah. Um, the reason I wanted to invite you guys onto the show, thank yeah. you very much, Andrew, and thank you, James, It was because this is the... This month is the 45th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War, right? Right. And um, I think that's very meaningful for us and for America because the Vietnam War is so much of a fabric of what created America and how we see America now, you know? Yeah. Because I think that time was, that time the Vietnam War era was really the loss of innocence for America. Um, So you were saying, James... Uh, I mean, Andrew, you were saying about um, the 45th anniversary? Well, the, irony, the irony for me, because, I, you know, all war is personal. And, uh, you know, three weeks from now, it will be exactly uh, uh, the 45th anniversary when I fled from this country and became American. Um, the irony is that uh, I am now taking refuge in the city of my birth while there is this thing called a war against the virus in America, you know? Uh, and I seek shelter and safety in Vietnam, the country from which I fled, you know, That's while watching uh, the country that I love faltering uh, back home and fret. You know, it reminds me of how we fled to America after the war and then tried to figure out the news of what had happened to Vietnam, you know, mm-hmm. after the communists take over. So I find the whole thing is like a weird cycle of irony and tragedy, yeah. you know. It's like a big Can't reversal wait for, that for article you. to come out. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, no, it's such a it's it's a, an amazing personal story. Like I, I would love to to read that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I read your article yesterday, Andrew, about um, your reflection of <laughs> the yeah the duality of you know yeah. living between two cultures and and going back to Vietnam to live in 2019 was it. 2018 is like your reflection of what it was like when you left at age 11 and now returning at at this point um 
what are your reflections on on you know like the two vietnams well there are several vietnam but the <laughs> um the one that uh closest to me is is in memories right mm -hmm. um my childhood the war and and because it, it's such a, a deep imprint in how i see the world you know um it, it's all informed by that childhood yeah. uh, but that vietnam is gone it's long 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 gone uh, even the language had shifted completely. Oh, when yeah. I come back to Vietnam, people laugh at my language because it feels as if I am a time traveler from the 50s <laughs> or something to that. And when I say things like, and they giggle because they say, that's how my grandmother back in the rural used to say. <laughs> and they say, you either man hay la yoi, you're not like man yoi. <laughs> you know, uh, and just like regular expressions, you know, um, uh, when I was a child growing up, there's a lot of French words. Like, we don't say hoboy, which is a swimming pool. We say piscine, which is French word for a swimming pool, right? Uh, we say nyabang, uh, which is a French word for bank, bonk. Uh, and they say ngang hang, right? So, like, a whole slew of expressions and uh, languages that had completely shifted. And of course, we can still communicate. Uh, uh, and I'm pretty fluent, but I'm fluent in pre-75 language, like a different dialect. <laughs> you know, just like if you're Chinese and you go to Shanghai, they're like, hey, where, 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 which province do you come from? Because they can tell, like, the moment you open your mouth, right? right. So th the modern Vietnam is completely changed. Um, and uh, it's full of young people, you know. When I left, the population of both North and South combined was like 35 million or less. It's now 95 million people, you know, 45 years later or 98, you know what I mean? So the average age is probably under 30 with no memory of war or anything like that. And this is why when you come back and you, you know, you, you start mentioning the war, they look at you like some remnant of like war <laughs> museum. <you know? laughs> and then when you start telling them about history, they have that, that you know, that war look that young uh, people usually do when they like old grandpa is trying to tell war story <laughs> what about you james didn't you go back last year i went back to um vietnam gosh when did i go back no i i didn't go back last year because um that was i was in china working um was it two years I ago i went back Two years ago, two, three years ago. God, it's been all of a, a blur right now. We're in 2020. What shocks you yeah. about Vietnam? <laughs> What's that? What shocks you about Vietnam? What shocks me about Vietnam? Um, <laughs> and I'm going to ask my, Andrew too. The, the, the Vietnamese that I've retained um, is through food. So I think what shocked me from the, the first time I went to Vietnam was in 1999 when I went back after we left um, in 78. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that, was, that was coming back as a uh, BQ and, and being able to um, recognize the food that was through, through Vietnamese food was how I was um, uh, connected back to my mom. So my mom and our family, we, we separated uh, there was the, my dad, my my two older brothers, and myself. We left first. Um, we left first on. Uh, we were boat people. We left in seventy eight, 
ended up in a refugee camp in um, Indonesia, um, stayed there for two years. And um, while we were waiting for mom and my two older sisters and a younger brother, so it was a pretty large family to join us. Um, but it wasn't until my um, uh, later on when when growing up in American and assimilating into American culture was where I was able to break apart like the history and find out what was factual against what was dreamscape. So I was four years old and um, very sheltered and very protected. But I came to know that my dad was waiting for um, immigration to sponsor my mom, the rest of the family over. And it wasn't until towards the end of two years that we were there that um, the immigration officer basically said, here's your last chance. If you don't take this offer now, you will be sent back to Vietnam and all of this would have been for nothing. So they gave my dad two options, one to Canada and one to one to Minnesota. And so my dad said, well, I don't know where, where Canada is and we can't go to Canada because I told your mom that we're going to meet up in America if we get separated. So off we went to Minnesota. And, um, yeah, and so it, it, that separation was 14 years. So we were separated for 14 years. Um, actually, sorry, 12 years. And I was 16 years old when my mom and my uh, sisters and my younger brother came and we were reunited in San Francisco. Um, so my identity to Vietnam didn't happen until my mom and my sisters came over. And mm. then through my mom being such an amazing cook, she introduced me back to Vietnamese culture through food. Wow. So when I went back to Vietnam as an adult, the food was the, to answer your question, that was the most shocking thing was that it felt so familiar. Mm. Wow. So it was a, the senses was, was what was the most shocking. Wow. Well, your shock is a lot less um, culture shocking than Andrew's. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think language and cultural etiquette, for me specifically, going back back to Vietnam in 2018 as well. How come I didn't see you guys? But, um, yeah, I went back well, in 2018. Time, you know, if the virus is over, we can have a big dinner. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Yes, but, please. yeah, like, going back to Vietnam, man, it just, like, my story of um, being a refugee and coming to the United States is very similar to James's, actually, because mm. we left in 78 um, on a refugee boat. And um, that is also chronicled in an earlier episode of the My Vietnam podcast. But, like, we didn't... Um, we ended up in Malaysia, and we did not come to the States until... 1980 so it took us two years and during that time in the refugee camp um, some man told my father that he had heard so many stories of refugees going to other places but there is no place like America so if you have the chance hold out and um, wait until an American sponsors you and we held out for two years two years yeah wow. but like it was true when we came, like, my parents were like, oh, my God, there's, like, so much free food and everyone's helping us. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, mm -hmm. Where did you end up? 
We ended up in Oakland, in Oakland's Chinatown. That's where, wow. that's where we ended up. And, like, um, soon, like, within a year, like, our, uh, my father's siblings, like, also started coming, trickling over. And then they all lived in a townhouse together. But, yeah, we lived in Oakland's Chinatown. And then we moved our way down to San Jose um, to be with the Vietnamese, uh, all in San Jose, that was my, my formative years, starting at two years old, that's all I knew, but, um, yeah, and now going back, I feel like it's so, it's completely two different cultures, right? Yeah. It's like completely two different cultures, like the way that people talk to each other, and now I'm like kind of yeah. shocked, like... Oh my God! Your etiquette. Where's your etiquette? You're you're kind of like, you know, terse and blunt and and yeah. um, you know, like the yeah. like the etiquette, the um, cắt đối xử với nhau back in the day. It's like very different than the the way that the speech and the language is now. You know, it changed a lot. Like for instance, uh, the term bang, which really means originally means friend, right? Yeah. Bang, good is now to, uh, a generic you. Yeah, like, yeah. So it's like, các bạn mua món này đi. Like, please, gen- ladies and gentlemen, buy this. Or, bạn tên gì? Friend, what's your name? Right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's become a generic you. And in fact, if you're real friends, you don't say, bạn ơi, you say my or something. You, you know, yeah. the funny thing is, it, the, the original meaning has been stripped away to, to be, be replaced with the word you. Yeah. Right. Uh, so just as an example, so the language completely shifted. Yeah. Um, you know, which I don't like, but you know, and so I resist on using the new language. Yeah. Um, which makes me really like an old old fogey here. <laughs> the language, actually, language. I think language and the use of language and how you use language to to communicate to others actually creates yeah. your world. You know, your worldview and how you see the world. Because if you use right. hostile language, that's all you see is like hostility, you know. Right. And I feel like over there, there's, there's so much hostile language. So I feel like, is that how they feel? And that is like a reflection of, of that drive, that drive to like be successful and make it, right. and like you know, on a it's daily basis. It's part of basis. A, the new aggressiveness because there's so much hunger for for to make it here. Yeah. And, and so the, the desire to, to like rise above one station, you know, it's, it's all compelling. And, you know, everyone is entrepreneurial, you know, and everyone's trying to make a, you know, good dollar, quick dollar. So that's why uh, the language, you know, part of the reason why the language shifted, you know, everyone, they're so aggressive here. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, you know? it is. So what? Let's end it with asking um, James, what is your writing process like? And then I will ask Andrew as well on um, a typical typical day. Well, it's it's very atypical these days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the the it, it took a while because it's three weeks into the the shelter at home, but. Um, the first week was a little, was a little, um, you know, th- that was making sure that family and loved ones were, were taken care of and they, and, and their well being was, um, that was my main priority. 
And the second week I kind of fell into it as like the rhythm of um, being able to get up earlier, um, make sure that I like kind of carve out a, a specific time in the day just for the news, just because it's just, you just get inundated with all these headlines um, and then still finding, finding a, a pattern and a rhythm. But I, I think I landed in a nice little um, pocket, which is, um, defining a couple of hours solely in the morning just to for creative um, writing processes. And that's the first thing in the morning. Um, texts and headlines and news is another, like, catered for the afternoon. And then in the, like, evening, of course, there's, there's food throughout the day, but then the evening is when my partner and I actually come to the table without needing any... Um, uh, having to do with the headlines and having to do with anything else like work-wise. So it's just being able to separate and find a balance. So I'm still figuring it out, but I think the first two hours in the morning is critical for the creative process. Wow. For me, like the first two hours is just coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to well, get wired. Have, it's tea, yeah. So it's tea with the creative process. Yes. <laughs> And for I'm you, right now. Oh wow! And for you, Andrew, um, what is your writing process like? And would you ever consider screenwriting? Um, I thought about it, uh, but I'm trying to finish what I'm doing right now first, so that it get out of my system. What are you working but, uh, on? Um, so I'm working on a collection of a short story. It's like a collection after Birds of Paradise Lost, and uh, this one deals mostly with. Um, Love, loss, and lust—the three L's. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of sex, LGBT themes, and half of them. So, on. Uh, but uh, it's a end of Vietnam War is far in the background. So, you know, it's more about what happened in America and the children of uh, Vietnam, and you know, and and love and life. Uh, so, when that's done, I uh, want to write this book that I've been meaning to write. James knows all about it. But it's been hard because uh, <laughs> so many things happen and, you know, moving to Vietnam and now the virus. It's very hard to focus on a long novel. Like you need a long, long time just to immerse into something like that. Yeah. Um, and and I'm so distracted by so many different things, especially last few, few weeks. You know, it's just I'm just overwhelmed by the tragedies around the world, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I'm still trying to figure out, like, what is my purpose in life, you know, if not storytelling, then what, right? So I'm not good at anything else, but maybe cooking some dishes here and there. <laughs> <laughs> but I think narrative is so important, isn't it? The narrative of your life, right. the narrative of your country, the narrative of yeah. how you see your worldview. It's just in the like, end, a good story will, will live long after you. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And like, what it can impart on, on the listener as well. I think, like, all of that is so important. Um, right. Like, you, you're you trying to write something, but you don't know what you're writing. Like, for me right now, I'm just finally finishing a first draft of this play that yeah. I started 15 years ago. And yeah. I could write, like, a screenplay. I can write a TV pilot in, like, yeah. weeks. But this play is taking me 15 years, and it's about yeah. the Asian-American experience. Um, yeah. But I didn't know what I was going to draw from because um, 
because it's so I wanted it to be unique and different and stand out and and uniquely Asian American and there has never really been a space like that you know where you can you can just write from the heart and from the hip and right now with coronavirus you know like Asians are the target Asians are the target of discrimination and yeah this whole month I've been grappling with like should I continue writing this thing but then now I'm almost near the end and it's taken me seven drafts seven drafts of the outline and finally the first draft of of the play but like yeah I, you know I'm worried that this virus is going to take over all the narrative yeah by by which I mean you know my stories didn't have anything to do with disease and epidemic exactly so uh, and and yet you know all the narrative that's written from now on you know it's very hard to avoid this this sort of like uh a historical marker that we, we found ourselves in, right? Yeah. And so it's hard to, not, just like, you know, when you talk about history, later on, how can you avoid World War One or World War Two, that sort of thing? And for I think for our generation or, and generation after us, it's very hard to not talk about the virus <laughs> in some form or another and all kind of creative products that come out of this, this era, you know? Yeah. And that's why I worry because... You know, uh, my concentration had always been about war, post-war narrative and refugee experience and um, life of exile and displaced. But yeah. uh, but this virus might find itself inserting into everything, you know. But I, but I also I feel like it's part of our, our, our lived and experience as refugees, as yeah. immigrants. Um, the Where we are at right now with this COVID-19 right. is that it feels like it's a crisis. It feels like it is a um, it, like there there's common threads to um, uh, death and, and grieving. So I feel like we all three of us. We, even though this is a, a novel thing that ha- a new thing that has affected us on yeah. this scale, it, it yeah. has it has common threads to our own personal experience of leaving Vietnam, of leaving right. a war torn right. home. I feel like it's the the emotions are very similar. Sure. Well, the one thing that uh, it does have uh, kind of a, a flashback for me is that something like this uh, sort of cause you to doubt every, your reality very quickly. Because, you know, for me, growing up in Vietnam, I never thought I would cross the border and become an American, right? Yeah. So, uh, but here it's like, wow, America is imploding. Is that even possible? <laughs> you know? I mean, like, you know, that sort of uh, yeah, whole sense of stability, uh, you know, undermine very quickly the moment you're forced, in, you know, into a, a, a crisis like this, you know? Yeah. Well, what I appreciate about your writing, Andrew, is like you write about something, a, a place, a time, a people that could easily so be erased and are erased in, in the context yeah. of history, you know, yeah. which is erased on the Vietnamese side of the current yeah. administration and in America in history books. Right. It, right. And that is the South Vietnamese, you know, Yeah, and people yeah. don't distinguish between all of that they just think you know everything unilaterally there's a monolith or something but like the voices that you see that are mass produced are the the side of the winners yeah and it's and so stereotypical stories, you know yeah uh, so i want to i always want to write about uh 
not the winners, not necessarily the losers either, but like the ones who sort of force outside of history and have to sort of find another narrative that to make sense of themselves. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's why I gravitate and I can I, I connect to your stories because those are the stories that I I find fascinating and mm. and share. Yeah. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for being on the My Vietnam podcast. So let's end this. Okay. Thank you, James. Thank you so much, Ringo. Thank you, Andrew. So good. Yeah. Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Let's talk when I get back to San Francisco. Yes. Yes. Okay. Or meet up in Saigon. Yes, both. Okay. <laughs> Bye. All right. Be well. Thank you to our guests for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it, and. Thank you to the listeners for joining in. Also, I want to say a special thank you to the essential workers who are on the front lines, and we are very grateful. Yes, please stay safe, stay at home, everybody, and be healthy. We hope you all the best, and we will see each other again. But for right now, we must say bye bye, bye from, from Hollywood. Hollywood.